Hello, Reality Santa Barbara, and Happy New Year. I'm excited to be with you all this morning, this first Sunday of 2021. Obviously, uh, it's not as good as being with one another physically, um, but then again, not all things are new in the new year. We're experiencing the ongoing lingering effects of the pandemic, and we're just going to trust the Lord that in our time together. He will unite us in a way that only he can. And you need to know wherever you're watching this, whoever you're with, you're not alone. But in Christ, we are united together. We are bonded to one another, and we are with in the presence of the Lord. So together, let's open our Bibles to the book of Psalms and meet together in Psalm 133. And while you're turning there, I want to talk a little bit about how we're going to be approaching this text. Psalms is a unique book in our Bibles. Um, it is, it's a poetic reflection on God and his story, his story with his people. And, and as a poetic reflection, um, it is a, a book that invites us not only to know things about God, uh, but to experience those truths, to reflect on those truths in a way that is isolated from the concrete facts and histories and events of the narrative text and to experience them in a new way through music, through song, through poetry, so that we are invited not only to know things about God, but to reflect on God and these truths in our own lives. And so the, the Psalms connect us to the story of God and his people in a very unique and beautiful way. And our psalm today is especially unique. It is one of 15 psalms given the superscription, a song of ascents. These songs of ascent were sung by the Jewish worshipers as they made their regular pilgrimages to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship God in the temple during one of the, the prescribed feasts. And so they would, these psalms were to be sung as they were marching up the mountain to Jerusalem, as they were approaching the presence of God in the temple, they would be singing these songs. And so they were sung, these Psalms of Ascent in Psalm 133, they were sung throughout all of Israel's history, throughout centuries, as, as times changed and their circumstances changed, they would still approach God in the temple and they would sing these psalms. And so these different seasons would provide different opportunities to reflect on the same truths and yet experience God in unique ways. And so today, among ourselves, we may also find a variety of experiences in ourselves and in others in the church, and that's good. And so we're going to read Psalm 133, and then we're going to invite God to lead us in this reflection together. So Psalm 133 is short and sweet. A song of ascents of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray together. 
Father, we know that unity is a good thing. We crave it, Lord, we long for it. We recognize that we've just turned the page on a year that's been marked by disunity and division in so many ways. And so God, we come to you to learn from you today, to be united around your word, to be united by your spirit, to be united together. And we ask that you would do the work that only you can. Lord, may we receive from you today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, unity is a good thing. That's not a hard sell. We know this in our relationships, in our families, in our churches, our jobs, and in politics. There's an ease and a peace in life when brothers and sisters are united, even in the midst of conflict. But often the way we pursue unity in the world is by trying to bend others to the way we would do things or to try to bend them to the way we think about things or our desires or to compromise the things that are important to us, the things that are valuable to us in order to keep the peace. But that's not unity. Unity is something that we may possess whether in agreement or disagreement because there is something more important than what we're talking about that we share. And so oftentimes when people are striving for unity, neither people budge and we just throw in the towel so easily and we divide and we go our own ways and, and, and there's division and, and we see this in, in broken homes, in estranged family members, in fallout among friends, in church splits, in betrayals, in business. We see division everywhere. There's nothing new under the sun. This isn't a, a, a 21st century problem. It's not an American problem. It's not a first world problem. Division and disunity is a human problem. And sometimes, if we're honest, fighting for unity doesn't feel worth it. It doesn't feel worth it sometimes. We would have to give too much. We would have to go too far. We would have to sacrifice more than we want to. But I think this Psalm gives us a different vision for unity. And I would say, I believe that King David who penned this Psalm thinks that unity is far more beautiful than we have ever probably imagined. See, David uses two metaphors, two pictures in his reflection on the goodness and pleasantness of unity. Now these pictures are strange to us but they would have made perfect sense in his day. I was tempted to call this sermon Beard Oil and Mountain Dew. And I decided that that was not a good sermon title. It sounded too much like a strange hipster COVID shopping list. But these are the two images that he gives us. Oil on the head and the beard of Aaron and dew on the mountain of Hermon. And so we're going to take these, these two metaphors together at first and talk about what they have in common. And then we'll look at them individually and see that the treasure, the individual treasures that each brings to the table. These two pictures together in, in the original language, 
of Hebrew, there is a beating drum that we don't quite pick up in English. What we just read, uh, we read um, uh, at one place running down, again running down, and at another place in the text falls on. And these, these words in English are, are one Hebrew root in the original language. And so that the beating drum through these two metaphors is descending, descending, descending. And so the first thing I want to point out is that unity is a gift that comes from above, that descends from God to his people. Unity is something that God does. It's something that God accomplishes. Unity is not something that you need to go out and make happen. It's something that is accomplished by the Lord himself. Think about Israel's origins, right? They did not build their nation. God made them a great nation out of the family of one man, Abraham, and then gave them their land. They're united by God under what God has done. But that doesn't mean that this gift of unity, becoming a family, God making a family into a great nation and uniting them under himself, that doesn't mean that unity and the blessings of unity are always going to be experienced by the community. If we believe that, the Bible will contradict us time and time again. It is full of strife and violence within God's people and within individual families. It begins when Adam and Eve hide from one another. It continues when Cain kills Abel. Abraham sleeps with his wife's servant. Jacob swindles his brother, deceives his father. Esau wants to kill Jacob. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. And those are only a few random examples from the first book of the Bible. It continues and it doesn't get any better. Full of strife and violence where there should have been the blessing of unity that God has made because unity is a gift that comes from God. We know this to be true that just because God gives unity, it doesn't mean we're always going to experience its blessings. It's the difference between entering a three-legged race and winning a three-legged race. You can strap your leg to someone and be united, but you're gonna fall on your face if you do not sync up your movements and learn to walk in unity. And so God has accomplished unity. He has united us under himself and we must learn to walk in it. And when we do, we'll experience its fruits. So when, then what is the fruit of unity? What are these blessings? We'll look at the individual metaphors as they each describe a particular fruit of unity. The first is that we need to understand that unity sets God's people apart. To be set apart in scripture is to be holy. And so unity sets God's people apart so they may be seen as holy. And I feel like I need to explain this a little bit because when we think of holiness, our, our concept of holiness is so often limited to the idea of moral perfection, right? And, and that is true when we think about God being holy. He is morally perfect. But when, when people are holy, it just means, it means we're set apart. We're different. We're, we're other, right? And so I was thinking about this this morning. I have, my wife and I have, have three sons. 
Um, and and I'll, I'll answer the question that some of you are thinking, no, we're not going to try for the girl. Um, and we have three sons, and, and they each have more stuffed animals than they know what to do with. Um, but they each have one that's set apart, right? It's, it's, it's cedar, boo-boo, and zebes, right? It's, it's a dog, a bear, and a zebra. And these stuffed animals, they're, they're holy. They're set apart. They're different from the others. Um, they were with my children in the hospital when they were born. They're in every photo of them when they were growing up. They're, they're special. They're a unique treasured possession, right? They, they, uh, they, they interact and relate to this stuffed animal in, in a different way. Um, as I, actually, as I talk about this, I might need to have a conversation with my children about idolatry. Um, but these animals, these stuffed animals, are, they're special. They're holy. They're set apart. They're different from the other ones. And so our unity sets us apart from the rest of humanity. The unity of God's people sets them apart so they may be seen as holy, different, other. This, this might sound weird in this text. You might be asking like, where, where are we getting this? Where does it say anything about unity making God's people holy? Well, this first picture describes the consecration of Aaron, the first high priest, when he was set apart as the high priest. And his role as high priest is unique. He was a mediator. He would make sacrifices on behalf of the sins of people, make sacrifices to God, and then pronounce forgiveness, uh, the, 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 the forgiveness that the people had on behalf of God. He stood between the people as a representative of them and pronounced forgiveness as a representative of God. But he was not the only one called to be priestly. The entire nation of Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests. When the people lived in unity with one another, it was a sign to the nations that they were different, that their God was different. They, they represented all of the nations, all of the peoples to God, and they were to represent God to the people and their unity with one another, their love for God, their love for each other, their unity was to be a picture to the nations that not only were they different, but that their God was different. And it was to be evidence that they had been set apart. See, in Genesis chapter 11, when God scatters the people at the Tower of Babel, all of the peoples scatter throughout the earth. And yet God, in the very next chapter, he chooses one man, Abraham, calls him to himself, sets him apart. And he makes him a great nation and, and chooses to bless him. And he chooses to bless him so that Abraham will be a blessing to all of the families of the earth. And so Israel is Abraham's family set apart. They are brothers and sisters, as the Psalm says. They're set apart, blessed to be a blessing. And so Aaron, as the high priest, is to be an individual example that the rest of the nation should be following. The nations were to see God's people united and be attracted to the God of Israel who accomplished such a beautiful thing. Unity is, is, is not just for God's people. It's missional so that they will be a blessing to all the families, all the peoples of the earth.
The second picture that King David uses in this Psalm connects to what we've just talked about, but then takes it a little further. See, Mount Hermon was the tallest peak in the area. And so clouds would form over Mount Hermon and then be carried throughout the land to water the earth and the crops and to provide flourishing. And, and also water would fall upon Hermon and the runoff would become one of the primary sources of the Jordan River, which was absolutely essential for life in the region. And so what the Psalm is saying is that the dew of Hermon is not for Hermon alone. As the oil comes down on Aaron's head and gets in his beard and on his clothes, the water would come down on Mount Hermon and flow down and out in the same way. The water, the dew of Hermon is not for Hermon alone. It goes out and blesses and, and provides flourishing and thriving and life in the whole region. So as the water doesn't stay where it falls, but flows down and out and brings life to the whole land, the gift of unity that sets God's people apart was intended to be shared with all people. It's not about self-glorification. It's not about self-preservation. Unity is not so that we can like cloister ourselves in and insulate ourselves from the world. Unity is a blessing so that we will be a blessing. It is to go out and affect the community and impact all people. The people of God are blessed to be a blessing, not to hoard, not to keep it to themselves. And so unity is a gift from God. It sets God's people apart. And the unity of God's people is to be a blessing to all peoples. When people look at the relationship between believers in a church, do they see any difference from any other groups and, and gatherings of people in the world? When your friends and your family look at your relationships with other believers, when, when they see your life, when they see the community of God's people, are they any more attracted to following Jesus than they are following any influencer on social media? Is there something different about your relationships? Is there something different about your unity? Does conflict drive you apart? Or do you fight for unity because of the commonality in Christ by his spirit that you have? King David says that if you are walking in the unity that God has given you, people will see a value in Christ, in the God of Israel, in our Lord, that is different than any other common thing, common interest we can share. Unity is a gift from God, it sets God's people apart and blesses all people. Now, here we are, first Sunday, 2021. And last year uh, was marked by division and disunity that even wasn't just in the political realm, wasn't just in, you know, in the world, it crept into the church. It crept into churches everywhere and it pitted brothers and sisters in Christ against one another. And there's been painful physical division evidenced by the fact that you're watching this on a screen somewhere and we aren't together because of the pandemic. 
Add to this already existing temptations uh, for people in a church to divide over theology, philosophy of ministry, preaching and worship styles, what coffee to serve in the church. There's all kinds of reasons for conflict and division. And to be honest, I can't say that 2021 is going to be any different. And though our circumstances may slowly change, the temptation to divide will never go away. It's only going to evolve. Because check this out. God has an enemy, right? God has an enemy who hates you, hates the church, wants to do anything he can to disrupt God's mission. He wants nothing more than to divide the church because if unity sets you apart and blesses Santa Barbara, then he wants to tear you apart. And in doing so, you will become a stench to this community. The temptations to divide will never go away. They will only change. See, throughout the history of God's people, time and time again, Israel failed to be the blessing to the nations that they were called to be. There were seasons when things looked like they were tracking the right direction, but eventually somebody messed it up. Time and time again. They could never fulfill their calling as a kingdom of priests in the way they were intended. See, the most tragic division in life is the division between God and man that's caused by our sin. We're separated from the one who made us. We're divided, separated from the one who loves us and longs to be with us. And so Jesus, who, who has been in perfect unity with the Father since eternity past, takes our sin upon himself on the cross, dies the death, the ultimate separation from this life and relationship with God that we deserve, takes that upon himself and experiences the breaking of that unity with the Father so that we can be invited into the love that they have shared for all eternity and will share with us for all eternity. By his death, the, the, the sacrifice of our great high priest, as the book of Hebrews calls him. We are declared righteous. We're declared children of God, reconciled to him in the same way that the nation was to follow Aaron's example of high priest and be a priestly nation. We are to follow the example of our savior, Jesus, becoming what Peter calls a royal priesthood. That's who we are as the church. We represent humanity to God in a special way and represent God to humanity in a special way as we follow Jesus together. And this is something that God has done. It's, it's not new. It's not something that we've accomplished. He has accomplished it in Christ and it is finished, accomplished for us. There's nothing we must do but believe God has united us to himself. And so we walk in unity and fight to maintain that unity with one another. So how do we do that then? How do we fight to maintain unity with one another? Well, unfortunately, the psalmist doesn't say. I don't think that's his intention. I don't think his goal is to outline five ways to walk in unity. If he were asked, he would probably say, look at the law, right? Love God, love one another, right? As Jesus instructed us. And so I don't want to just ignore 
that we're asking that question. How do we, how do we live in unity? But I don't want to make it a central point because I do think the psalmist uh, has a point in, in penning this poem in, in this way. Um, and so just a challenge to Reality Santa Barbara for 2021. Love one another this year, please. Forgive each other. If you've wronged one another, confess, repent. Love God, love each other. That's, that's a biblical truth. Those are, those are things that we know. Scripture teaches us these things. They're true and they're good. I don't think though, that's where the psalmist immediately wants us to go. Um, I mentioned that this song would have been sung throughout a variety of seasons in Israel's history. Um, and, and in the different seasons, there would be a different response. Most, most scholars believe that David wrote this psalm early in his reign. And there's some evidence for that. Particularly, um, it's very celebratory. And in the beginning of David's reign, there was a lot of unity to be celebrated. The kingdom was united under his reign. Uh, he received that from God and there was great joy. He brought the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And there was just a special season of unity among God's people. He also says, behold, right? The Psalm begins, behold, how good and how pleasing it is, right? That, that word means check this out, look at this, right? It, it seems like David was writing this in a season in his reign when unity was a thing, when unity was there, when it was good and pleasing and all people could see it. And so in seasons of unity, this Psalm would be sung with great joy and, and praise and, and celebration. But later on in David's life, I think David would have looked back on this Psalm with a little bit of a different response, a different reflection. When his house was torn apart by violence, when there was disunity among even his own family, he would read how good and how pleasing it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity and his own children were trying to usurp his throne, harming one another. I think David would have looked at this with lament and longing remembering the unity that used to be there that isn't there any longer. And as the worshipers throughout all of Israel's history for centuries, they would ascend the mountain to Jerusalem, to the temple, and they would be singing this Psalm in seasons of great unity and joy, but also after the kingdom was torn in two. I think there would be a different response to singing about the goodness of unity when you know there are brothers and sisters over there in that land who have nothing to do with us anymore. They would have sung it in foreign occupation and in exile in Babylon. And that would have taken a different shape, had a different response. And it would have been sung again after the exile, when all of God's people were coming from different lands and making their home in Jerusalem again, and the temple was rebuilt. And once again, there was a place to celebrate the feasts every year. There would be a different feel. And so similarly, we have a diversity in our experiences as we read about the goodness and, and the value of unity. And, and we have the opportunity as individuals to respond differently. And so I want to give you three ways that we, uh, we can respond to this. If you're looking at your life right now and you see evidence for the fruit uh, of unity, then an appropriate response is celebration. 
praise. Give thanks to God for the unity that he's accomplished in your life, in your relationships, and, and celebrate the joy and, and the fruit, the goodness that that is. If you are in life right now looking around and recognizing more the disunity and division and chaos that's caused by sin and brokenness and, and, and all of these different things going on in the world, then I believe an appropriate response to this psalm is to lament, to grieve, to press into the pain and say, God, it should not be this way. Do something. And then as we celebrate the opportunities we have to celebrate, as we lament the things that need to be lamented, another appropriate response is prayer. We recognize the areas where there's disunity and we ask God to bring unity. These are the ways I think are, that are, that are uh, the ways we should respond to this psalm, we recognize where there is unity, recognize where there's not, and ask God to bring that unity. But oftentimes, and, and I experienced this in myself as well, and maybe you can relate, we often resist or ignore the opportunity or even the command to celebrate or, or the command to lament and to grieve, or we ignore or devalue prayer. One of the reasons we don't celebrate enough is because we, we aren't truly reckoning with what Jesus has actually accomplished on our behalf. We're not, we don't actually understand what he did for us, right? One reason we don't lament is because oftentimes it's just too scary to look our brokenness and our insecurities in the face. And it, honestly, it's just easier to get angry than it is to grieve. Anger feels more powerful than grief. And we don't like to grieve. We don't like to lament. We'd rather just get angry at the people who believe differently than us or live differently than us or whatever it may be, disagree with us. And so we don't actually lament. We don't actually grieve and take our sorrow and our pain to God. And oftentimes we don't pray because we think that we should be sufficient. Deep down, we think that, that by our human resources or through politics or our power of persuasion or ingenuity, we should be able to solve our own problems. And so we don't celebrate, we don't lament, we don't pray. But this psalm brings us face to face, invites us to see what we're missing, to see the unity and its blessing that, that is in our life and is not in our life. And it gives us confidence in celebration. It gives us comfort in pain and it gives us assurance in prayer because Jesus is better than Aaron. Jesus is our great high priest who fulfilled all that Israel was supposed to be. He not only makes sacrifices for us, but is our sacrifice and doesn't just pronounce forgiveness, but righteousness from God. And we're not only reconciled through him, but we are united to him and to one another. So it's not by proximity or not by affinity, like, oh, I like Jesus's teaching. So you and I are united. No, we are united by his blood and by the spirit of God. We have a unity that others can't experience apart from the blood of Christ and the spirit of God. This is something to celebrate. We have comfort in our pain. 
in the pain of disunity because we know it's not always going to be this way. However long this lasts, it's not always going to be this way. Christ was separated from his father on the cross so that we could be united and invited into their love and unity. He knows what it's like to suffer from broken relationships and experience the pain of disunity. And as our great high priest, he laments with us and we have his assurance when he rose from the dead that it will not always be this way. Death will not have the last word. The enemy is defeated. And being aware of our reasons to praise and also our reasons to experience pain and lament, we have assurance that God hears when we pray. He hears when we ask him to bring unity to our brokenness and our areas of division. This is what Jesus himself prayed in John 17. He prayed that we would be one as he and his father are one. And knowing that this was Jesus' own prayer, how much more confidence and assurance do we need to pray Christ's own words to the father? And say, God, make us one, unite us so that we can experience the blessing of unity and not only us, but all of Santa Barbara, that they will look at reality Santa Barbara. They will look at all of those who are under the blood of Christ in this city and say, there is something different about Jesus. There is something holy about his people. There is something I need, I want, I am desperate for. Our unity, our love, even in the midst of conflict and disagreement, is a sign to this city that the Father sent the Son and poured out his Spirit and has united us to himself. And when people see that, they'll see the beauty and the power of God. I want to close with this. We've just spent some time together. And as the people ascending to worship God in the temple would sing as they climbed up. They would sing, descending, descending, descending. It was a reminder to them that they would not remain on the mountaintop, but that they would eventually go down and carry with them the God that they serve to their communities, to their families, to their their countries. And we've spent this time together hearing from God's word. And I want to remind you that you're going to go from this place. We can't stay on the mountaintop. We're going to go from this place, descending, descending, descending out into our lives, into our relationships and into our families, carrying with us the gift of God. You are blessed to be a blessing. So let's own that, receive that from the Lord And know that in Christ, we are united. And so let's walk in unity. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we recognize, we thank you that in Christ, we are united not only to you, but to one another. And we confess that we don't do unity well. We're selfish. Um, we, we, uh, We have short tempers. We're unforgiving at times, Lord. And we need to be reminded Um, that even though sometimes forgiving someone feels like death, uh, we recognize that it took death for us to be forgiven. And so Lord Jesus, we celebrate you. We lift you up. We exalt you. We worship you. And we ask that you would give us the power to love one another, to love you, to walk in unity in a way that shows your glory, your beauty to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.